Welcome to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. In this podcast, we discuss, educate and talk about industry news and hot topics, company reviews and live interviews with mining professionals and leading figures in the mining industry. Introducing your host, Rob Tyson, founder and director of Mining International. With a career covering nearly two decades, Mining International partners with new and junior miners and larger predominant players in the market. With no further ado, here is your host, Rob Tyson. Welcome to another episode of the Dig Deep, the Mining Podcast. And today I'm with Phil Newell of Waldo Armstrong and Charles Gibson from Edison Investment Research, who have produced a report, a detailed report called Gold Stars and Black Holes. Um, and about the, the actual um, document is about analysing the discount from resource to sanction. So they're here to tell us a little bit more about the report and how they produced it and what they conclude from their findings. And I have a few questions to ask them afterwards. So let's get straight into this. And if both of you, Phil and uh, Charlie, if you can tell us a little bit about your background before we actually uh, speak about the report. Uh, well, I suppose I should, should I start since, yeah. I, uh, since I wrote the report. Um, I've been in the city, what, for 25 years, man and boy. Um, I was a chemist at university, uh, joined the city in 1991. Uh, I worked for Casnova, I worked for Clough Mining, I worked for T Hawk Canaccord, and I'm currently working with Edison, and I've been, uh, been in mining all that time. I started in Johannesburg, I spent a little bit of time in Geneva, and now I find myself back in London by way of New York. Yeah. And Phil? Yeah, I'm Phil Newell. Um, I'm the uh, Managing Director of Wardle Armstrong International, which is a UK-based uh, mining consultancy group. My background is a little bit like Charlie's in that I've been 30, 35 years doing the same kind of thing. I've uh, spent my time as a jobbing geologist all around the world and now effectively manage a team of engineers and uh, environmental people who specialise in projects, primarily, I guess, in, in Africa and Europe, but also elsewhere in the world. Okay. Right, so let's get straight into it. Um, I don't know who wants to obviously go first. Probably Charlie, um, and let's talk about obviously the report that you uh, that you produced, and um, if you can give us a big uh, overview of of the actual report, uh, so our listeners can get an understanding of what the report's all about. Um, the, the the two halves really to this report, and one is we look at in situ values. It's very important for stock market uh, valuations in situ values. There's this idea, if I speak about gold mining companies, particularly if they're pre-production, there's this idea of the dollar per ton in the ground and or dollar per ounce in the ground in the case of gold. And this was something that we, we looked at for a number of years. Where we try and make it different is we try and um, we, we try and disaggregate different values for measured, indicated, and inferred. So you're not just looking at, at, at a blended ounce, if you like. You're looking at three distinct type of ounces. So this allows us to do several things. It allows us to differentiate between companies that have a higher proportion of measured ounces and a lower proportion of uh, inferred ounces. It also allows us to draw conclusions about when companies upgrade their resources, say, from inferred to indicated to measured as to how much value it'll add to their stock market listing. Uh, and then you can begin to com compare that against the cost of doing the same exercise and see if it's actually value adding for shareholders at the end of the day. So that is uh, half of the report. The other half is, is 
after uh, companies, when it, they drilled up the resources, if you like, there's then the question of are they economic, how economic are they, what sort of returns can you get on developing the project, and all projects have an NPV associated with them. And so the second half of the report is looking at the, the stock market valuation compared to those NPVs, the net present value of the cash flows of the project, and then, so that's a way of working out how cheap companies are relative to the project valuation, um, and also the range of those valuations. Now, if you look at that, the report of being composed of those two halves, there were, I would say there were three major conclusions that we came to. And one is we looked at 19 metals and minerals um, for, for both halves of the, the report. And of those 19, fully half of them, the value for measured resources was less than the value of indicated okay. resources. And in some cases, the valuation of measured was actually negative. Now, why I think that's interesting is because what it shows is, or, and there could be many reasons why that is the case, and we can speculate on those, but what it almost certainly shows is that for an average company with an average deposit, upgrading your resource when you got indicated to measured, although you think counter, although you think intuitively that that should be a value-adding process, in the eyes of the stock market, it appears not to be. So that is something that companies and their managements need to be very aware of when they're, when they're drilling up resources um, as to whether something is going to be valued or whether they're just going to throw $5 million or whatever it is into the drill bit and get absolutely no return for their money at all, which is, and they need to be aware of that when they're making those sort of decisions. So that was one major conclusion. The other major conclusion was, uh, the, sec well, the second, I should say, major conclusion is that for all but one of those uh, 90 metals and minerals I was talking about, there is evidence the market will give you credit for resources that you haven't yet discovered, that you you can somehow suggest are there, so, um, but have yet to be drilled up. And that's more than we've ever seen in the past. We've been doing these reports for some time now, and in the, we've always had a certain number of, of metals and minerals for which that's true. But now literally all of them except for one, and that one actually in the past has shown evidence of exactly the same thing. So again, what we say, uh, you know, the only way we can rationalize that, because there's a very, very clear relationship between something being small and highly valued or, or large and lowly valued. Now that is counterintuitive as well. And the, the only way one can really rationalize that, I think, is by saying, look, that must be the city or the markets, the equity markets, discounting the discovery of more resources out into the future. So something, again, we say to managements when we talk to them is, look, shoot all the geophysics you possibly can to suggest the full extent of this resource because the market will give you credit for that. And that's, again, that's something that companies need to be aware of. Um, and finally, and, and this is the second year in succession that we've done this, and the second half of that report, that EV, that enterprise value, I com company valuation to NPV um, calculation that we or analysis that we were looking at, the other thing we found is that, on average, the valuation of companies that have done pre-feasibility studies on their projects get a lower market valuation than companies that have done a, a preliminary economic assessment or a scoping study. So whereas, again, intuitively, if you're a manager of a company or a chief executive, you would think, I'm going to do this work, I'm, I, I've done a preliminary economic assessment, I'm going to do a pre-feasibility study, there is greater certainty around the pre-feasibility study, therefore my stock market valuation should go up, and then I'll raise money. 
that is probably, or on average, what this report suggests is that that is not the experience you're going to have. You're going to do the pre-feasibility study. Again, there could be many reasons for this, and we can speculate on those later. Uh, there could be many reasons for this, but on average, for an average company, what you're going to find is you're going to, you've got a PEA, you're going to do a pre-feasibility study, you're going to find your stock market valuation is going to go down. And again, you need to be aware. That is, you, you talked about the, um, the title of the report, Gold Stars and Black Holes. That was one of the black holes that we found. Um, which was, you know, it's, it's not obviously a sort of never-ending black hole, but it's a black hole in a valuation sense, in the sense your valuation goes down. So th those were the three main findings of the report. Okay. You mentioned, obviously, you produ uh, produce these reports every so often. Um, what's new in the report from the previous report, which was, may have been last year? Yeah, in, it, it was uh, late. It was November 2017 was the last report. So um, th there were three new things that we did, um, or three new conclusions that we we came up with uh, looking at the report. Uh, one was, and we'd never done this before, we looked at the relationship across all of those metals and minerals, the relationship between the commodity price and the in-situ value. So if one goes up by 10%, how much on average does the other one? So you know, so you, you, you could start to predict if you think the gold is going to go up 10%, well, how much would you expect gold explorers to go up for? And uh, the conclusion was, is we, we found for, for and we're looking at that effectively one year period between late 2017 and late 2018. But during that period, if the commodity price on average went up 10%, then the equity valuations of explorers, uh, junior mining explorers, went up by 15%. So you were getting one, a 1 1.5 times gearing effect. There was another um, conclusion we came to from that analysis, which is as well as, your, as, as getting the 1.5 times effect, if the commodity price didn't move at all, you still got a 20% uplift. Now, it's probably unique to that year, but the way we would interpret that is the, the market is broadly speaking, we think it has a, a positive attitude towards mining stocks at the moment. That even if the commodity price doesn't move, there is room for equity prices to go up. So if you think, if, if you like, we think the background is, is good in terms of the investment climate for junior mining companies at the moment. So that was the first new conclusion. The second was, is all the way through the report, we did a multiple regression analysis between the value of the company and its inferred resources, its indicated resources, and its me measured resources. And so generally what you're saying is you're saying the valuation of the company should be some function of those three numbers. And in the case of three metals, we found that this was indeed the case, but there's also there was a large constant there. So you, if you like, you're starting off from a positive valuation position or a negative valuation position. So what we found with nickel and silver is we found that insofar as the market is generally positive towards junior mining explorers, in nickel and silver it seems to be particularly, it seems to particularly favour those at the moment. They were starting, even if they were, had no resources at all, if they came to the market, they would be receiving a, a positive valuation of several tens of millions of, of US dollars. Completely the reverse in uranium, you might have been able to guess that because uranium has been in the dumps for quite a few yeah. years. It's showing signs of life, but it has been in the doldrums for some time now. But that started with a very, very negative uh, constant. So if you like, you couldn't really consider bringing a uranium company to the market unless you already had a pretty sizable resource. So that was the second uh, new conclusion or new analysis that we did. And finally, I suppose the third thing is we looked at how valuations compare across metals. And what we, dis what we discovered is for all of those 19 metals and minerals, for three in particular, you've got a much greater range of valuations than the, than the others. And those three were 
uh, copper, silver, gold, quite simply. Okay. And so I think you would immediately think, well, those are probably the metals that investors think that they understand. Whether they do or not is another matter. But they think they do. And so, so again, if you're looking for, um, if, you, if you're a junior mining exploration company, be aware that if you're looking at those three metals, you're, there, you, there is a potential for a much greater valuation range for your company than all of the other metals, which all had a pretty sizable discount. And I would suggest, I don't know, Phil, you would agree with me, but I would suggest that would be because if you look at something like tungsten, the person, the investor you're talking to at the other side, he doesn't immediately feel that he's comfortable with tungsten, that he knows everything there is to know about, that he knows the market dynamics necessarily, that he knows the price. So if you like, if you're starting from any other metal other than copper, silver, gold, you've got your work a little bit more cut out for you because you're going to have to educate the market about the metal before you even get on to the, uh, the particular parameters and characteristics of your project. Yeah. I think you're right with that, Charlie, in that uh, being a consultancy, we frequently get asked by various investors around the world, whether they be private equity funds or, or in individuals, and they're all looking for the same kind of targets. They're all after a, a copper deposit or a gold deposit or a silver project, because these are the kind of commodities that they fully understand. So I can see why that would have a, have a skew towards the results you're looking at. Yeah. Excellent. It's always nice. I always think it's nice <laughs> when, when, you get, when you get the analysis that it sort of reflects something that you implicitly know from real life, life but you... You can't always prove necessarily. I mean, I think that to me that was the uh, the thing my takeaway from the from the report, which I, I, I did enjoy reading, and, and I, I enjoyed it mostly for the fact that as a if you like as a layman, as a practitioner in the industry, um, a lot of the things that you quantified, they kind of did stand out as to what happens in reality. I mean, the first sort of major conclusion you had was regarding the measured in, yeah. measured resources, how they they don't necessarily give any added value to the project, and we tell actively our clients, particularly on I think gold is another one that you'd pick out as an example there, particularly in gold projects. You don't necessarily have to do all that extra drilling to take your resource to that measured level because obviously the cost of doing that work is, is high, but also on commodities like gold, you wouldn't necessarily get a better answer on what your total resource is. You still end it with the same number, even though you've infilled some of the holes a little more. Yeah. So it, it actually it comes through to exactly what Charlie's been, been doing on the report. So it's very nice to see that. And we again, we try try and save our clients money by telling them, look, just don't do this work. You probably don't need to do it because for reserves, without going too much detail, if you're going to go through then to, to mineral reserves, you can get away with just using your indicated resources to go through to your probable reserves. The measured is just it's nice to have, but in this day and age of money being tight, investment yeah. being tight, well, you maybe don't need to go for it. The second one, which I thought was also made me smile, was the. Uh, um, uh, was the issue about, um, as you say, let's call them exciting exploration uh, blue sky, giving really good added value to companies. And it's that old mining phrase that many a good project is spoiled by drilling it, meaning you can really sort of uh, bolster the, uh, the the value of a company by, by getting some pretty exciting results out there about some short-term discoveries or some nice geophysics or geochemistry. But in reality, as we all know, we're all in this business, the vast majority of projects do fail for one mm. reason or another. But in these initial stages, you can often get some pretty nice valuations attached. And as the saying says, sometimes when you bung holes in them, it doesn't quite pan yeah. out as you hoped. Yeah. And the third one was regarding the stock market, valuation, stock market valuations with Charlie uh, pulling out the fact that often a, a scoping study or PEA, which is the same thing, would sometimes give you a higher valuation than, than PFS and then through to DFS. And again, we see that. But I think it's the same kind of analogy is that at these early stages, you can afford to put a lot more froth into a project in terms of description because you're not you're not so uh, constrained by what you can and can't say, particularly at the PEA yeah. level. P 
PA is basically a report where you can kind of throw anything into the mix and come up with an idea of what you think that project might be like. Uh, might be like, and, and invariably that project may end up being considerably bigger or better than what you end up with. Again, by the time you've drilled it properly at, at PFS or DFS, the resource may have actually shrunk, or the grade may have come down, or the metallurgy may have got more complex. Guess what? Your valuation comes down. So again, as a practitioner, it was nice to see all those conclusions thinking, well, yeah, we knew all that anyway, but it's good for Edison to, <laughs> Edison to prove it for us. No, some interesting points you made there. Um, so in the past, you've done some analysis on sovereign risk. Um, did you repeat the process this, this year for this report? Yes, uh, we did um, in two separate ways. And the one thing I, I would say, um, what both analyses suggest is actually there's a little bit that the sovereign risk appears to be abating a little bit. Um, there's one particular analysis we do where um, we we create a company which we call Non Such Gold, and as its name suggests, it, it doesn't exist. But we we imbue it with all the qualities and characteristics that 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 sort of that average junior gold miner tries to create. So it's you, you're going to drill up a bit more than a million ounces. You're going to convert most of that into reserve. Um, uh, you're going to have a million ounces reserve. You're going to mine that over ten years at a hundred thousand ounces a year. It's going to cost you a hundred million to build, and then we value that at every stage of the company's life, from raising initial capital all the way through to the end of the life of the mine when um, when it, it reclaims its working capital, and at every and, and at every stage we we do that valuation. And then we have a range. We have a top of the range and the bottom of the range, and what we do in this particular case is we say, all right. Um, if we say that, that the Fraser Institute, who run an index, a survey of um, investment attractiveness, if we say that everything is average about this project except for sovereign risk, and we say that the best country in the, the Fraser Index corresponds to the lowest discount rate and the highest valuation, the worst country is um, the highest discount rate and the lowest valuation, there is a cutoff point between those two things where the, the, the city equity markets will absolutely not fund a project because they'll be creating something that's worth less than it was before they funded yep. it. And where the cutoff happens, what, what we can then do is we can then put a cutoff on the Fraser Institute and say, these countries down here, they're going to struggle. If you have an average project in these countries, you are going to struggle to get it financed. And the list, the, the the number of countries in that list that now fall below that that magic cutoff has has grown fewer than in previous previous years. So there is some evidence, if you like, on that basis um, that sovereign risk is abating. Um, the the other way that we looked at this was by seeing how important your jurisdiction was. Um, again, measured by the Fraser in, Index at different stages of, of development. And what we find is that actually the market at the scoping study or PA stage, the market isn't really very fussed about where your project is. Um, but by the time it gets to bankable stage, it is quite fast. And you can show that it's sort of statistically significant. So those the, the two things. One is I think in general, yes, sovereign risk is abating. Two is you just need to be aware when when that risk is important in selling it. And and as I say, at early stage, Markets don't seem to mind too much where a project is, but they, they certainly do a bankable stage. So that, that it's important for your marketing to know that. 
And again, we we see that as practitioners, we see exactly that trend at the moment, and particularly at that scoping study stage. I think investors are, are fairly savvy and will will consider a project in, in I guess most domiciles around the world. There's still a few that people will, will stay well clear of. I'm not sure of, of any major gold projects in the likes of Somalia or uh, Iraq. Yep. There's a few. It's a very small list. Um, but as Charlie said, the um, that list of countries where people won't go or not happy to go, I, I think is growing smaller. But to me, that's just simply being driven. Well, it's driven by two things. I think certainly if we look at the battery metals uh, sector, which is now sort of encompassing everything we do and really kind of driving things forward, there are a number of metals in there, which cobalt particularly, yeah. sort of 70 or whatever that number is, 70% of world's cobalt stored up in DRC. Now, traditionally, DRC was a place where tough to get financing in DRC, and it tends to be the major players who are in there uh, using their vast resources to develop projects. As a junior going into DRC, you may well get your fingers burned. But that's part of the, that's a high risk country, and that's known. But I think there is more of an appetite to go in there for, the, for some of the commodities, such yeah. as cobalt. But equally, the other side of the, um, the argument uh, refers to the fact that generally metals are running out. That's a simple fact of life. Big deposits are not being found yeah. anymore. What are being found are a number of or more smaller deposits, and invariably they tend to be parts of the world which haven't, which people haven't spent an awful lot of time looking. And guess what? That's often those countries which are low down on that Fraser index. So that's kind of it's a self-perpetuating thing that the industry is being driven down this route of having to go to places they didn't really want to go to in the past. Yeah. And I think as we all move forward and get older, that's just going to increase for sure. Certainly, certainly. Um, looking at the bigger picture uh, regarding commodities themselves. What are your thoughts on the uh, gold price? Bill, oh, oh, you want? Oh, Charlie, $64,000 question. <laughs> um, I, uh, I have an easy job. Being, uh, being a consultant, we, uh, when we do studies for clients, we set our own prices within Wardle Armstrong. We come up with a, a set of indexes, what we feel comfortable with. And our, and our rationale for that is, is purely based on experience in the industry. I've been around a long time. I've seen how the markets go up and down, see where the prices should be. But most importantly, our studies are all for some purpose. They're for a fundraising somewhere, or they're for a listing, or they're for uh, some kind of uh, IPO. And therefore, our prices need to reflect current market conditions. And as long as we pitch our prices within a range where somebody's not going to pick the phone up and say, Phil, what are you talking about? You can't use prices like <laughs> yeah. that. We're broadly covered. Because yeah. I defy anybody to say they can predict metal prices. As, a, as a, uh, a joking exercise a few years ago, I um, took time one year to record a whole bunch of um, uh, metal analyst price forecasts for the following, was it one or two years? And I, I just put them away in a filing cabinet. I opened them up two years later and I looked at them. And I think without exception, they were all wrong. Okay. So yeah. I would argue my, my pitch on metal pricing will be as good as anybody else's, but broadly, we'll all be probably wrong. Yeah. But I mean, there are some commodities with Charlie agree. Some are easier than others. Some have a much better supply and demand curve, which you can really get a handle on. Gold is probably one of the worst ones you could have picked. But equally, I suppose, the, 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 to me, the positive about gold is it's one of those perpetual commodities which broadly will continue to do okay. I don't think anybody in the marketplace is talking about a gold shift, a major shift downwards. If anything, I would think with what's happening around the world at the moment, gold's probably got some, maybe in my book, maybe got a little bit more upside to go. I don't know what you feel about that. But at 1300, 1350, there are a lot of projects around the world that are going to make an awful lot of money. Yeah. 
Sure, which I, and I think I think on the gold, gold price is always very difficult because it's it's not consumed. It's it, it's always there. I mean, it does. There are a lot of people who say it doesn't have a function. I completely disagree with that. It does have a function, and the function is it's a store of value. Yeah. And the reason it has a store of value is 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 because it's rare. And rare things you can look at the world in almost any which way you like. Rare things have a lot of value. You know, be they works of art, be they fashion, be they whatever they are, if they're not many of them around, they have value. And that's what gold is. And that, that's why it has been used as a store of value and as a currency. So I think it does have that function. And then you have to compare that, if you like, to other stores of value. And the typical one is to, to look at it against the dollar. Um, now, this is always a very difficult thing, but some, something we've done in past years, we said, all right, how does the price of gold compare to US dollar inflation, typically since 1934 when gold was pegged at uh, uh, $35 an ounce? Um, and then how does it compare to the US money supply? And at the moment, gold is expensive compared to historic US inflation. It's cheap relative to US money supply yeah. or potential money supply, the, uh, the total US monetary base. So really, the way gold moves, but also this is the way that... The, you know the entire world economy moves is going to defend is going to depend on the extent to which the increase in the U.S. total monetary base either translates itself into inflation or gets rolled back by the Federal Reserve. Now the Federal Reserve have said that they're going to start on a, a, a program of reducing their uh, their assets, which is a way of saying they're going to try and roll it back. That comes with quite a lot of dangers. If by any chance they also let the uh, uh, currency in circulation in the U.S. drop, there's, it, it's a near near uncertainty that that will cause a, a, a recession. And as we know, those are terribly, terribly popular with the voters. So, yeah. so almost under any circumstances, both politicians and the Federal Reserve like to try and avoid that. And that means I think that the Fed is going to have trouble rolling back its assets, its, its balance sheet in the, in the way that it said it would. We've already said, they, they've already suggested that there could be a pause in interest rate hikes, and I think that's just the start. And I think if we see them roll back on the um, on the reduction of their balance sheet as well. I think by and large that that I'm cautiously optimistic. I don't quite know what would catalyze a big move, but it's not, it's not very difficult. See, I, I can hardly remember a time of greater uh, geopolitical uncertainty. And the other thing I think it's worth looking at, and it's not only gold, but this has been demonstrated in the iron ore market, is, is you know, the unknown unknowns. And suddenly there's another tailings dam disaster in Brazil, suddenly Brazil is closing mines, and the rest of the world can't take up the slack anymore. So actually supply is quite tight. Well, so you just need one of those black swan yeah, events. I mean, I, like. iron ore is an absolute classic example. I mean, if you think back I, I'm not sure exactly, say two and a half years ago now and again, you looked at any mining analyst forecast for iron ore prices yeah. moving forward, it was rent between 40 and 45 bucks, flat, forever. <laughs> See where it's been in this last two years. Okay, Vale accident was a, was a, a one-off, but that's yeah. probably added 10 bucks to the iron ore price. But iron ore has been sitting between 60 and $70 for the last two years, with no real sign of it coming back off that, no matter what everybody's been saying previously. So again, classic case of what do the analysts know yeah. about pricing metals? You know, yeah. say, but... <laughs> <laughs> which is probably leading on good to the next question. Um, the, obviously, the predicted slowdown in the Chinese economy is likely to have a major impact on the extractive industries. So, what are your thoughts around uh, that? I, Phil defies anyone to to know uh, or to be able to predict metals pricing. I defy anyone to know what's going on in the Chinese economy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and yeah, again, this has been one that's you know it, it, you know what happens in China, um, you know, is is what the rest of the world depends on. 
But the trouble is no one really, I mean, we all know in hindsight what has happened in China, but how they take their economy forward and, um, and, and what policies they put in place and how well they regulate those policies. As far as I can make out, you pretty much have to be sitting in, in the Politburo meetings with the Politburo to actually know what's going it, yeah. on. So, you know, it, uh, to some extent, you answer your own question if you say, if China slows down, will it have an effect? Yeah, it will. The question is, will it slow down? And does that dovetail also with what the politicians there are saying and also what they're doing? Yeah. One thing you do notice about China is when it does appear to slow down, they're pretty quick to add stimulus to yeah. the to the economy. Yeah. So, um, you know, they're, they're also reacting to the same sort of headlines. And, you know, it 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 feeds into the iron ore debate as well because why have all these analysts been for years? And Phil's absolutely right. The analysts have been completely wrong on iron ore for I would have said oh, last probably not two, probably three, four, five yeah, years, yeah. and it's all been on the basis of of China saying yeah. they want to reduce pollution. Yeah. In, in the Harbei region. and But when you sort of see the statistics that come out with hindsight, yeah, everyone's assuming that capacity is going to be cut. Well, capacity is never cut to the extent that everyone thinks it's going to be cut. So again, you get on to you know, the, the extent to which they enforce what they say, and, and, and that's a much, much harder thing to judge. So, But I think it's, I just, I agree with everything yeah. Charlie said there, but just to, to, to really add into that, um, I, I have a slightly different take on that in that, in that Global media is, is, is very good at, at uh, giving you the headline numbers of China's growth gone either up 0.2 or down 0.2. And so this, the, the latest sort of headlines are it may come down to, to around 6%. Now, on anybody's patch around the world, 6% growth it's is absolutely stupid. enormous. Yeah. There are a lot of people living in China. They have enormous demand for metals. And back to one of the things I said earlier on about the fact that metals are just generally getting harder to find. They're getting more expensive to find. I genuinely think that even if China does take a little cold on its on its economy, and I, I, but I fully support Ch- uh, Charlie in that they'll come up with some new stimulus to probably push kickstart it, yep. move it forward again. But irrespective of that, I think really with the, the mining industries in a, in, a, in a place now, particularly with the battery metals and particularly with some of the major commodities, really starting to teeter a little bit about about supply and demand, where arguably I'm not sure it's going to have too much effect at all. Mm. Um, although global exploration budgets have gone up in the last couple of years, is there still a shortfall uh, to what needs to be done? Well, I'm glad you asked that because that's <laughs> right at my street, um, without a doubt. Yeah. Um, I, it's nice to see exploration kicked up in the last two years and the number's gone up, I think, whatever it was this year, 20, 19%, 20%. It's quite a decent increase. A lot of that is still mine-based exploration. It's people drilling where they know. Yeah. So it's, it's low-risk exploration. Where it's being starved exploration is right down at that junior sector. Are those people going out and finding those new discoveries? And if you think what I've just been saying almost throughout this entire podcast, the fact that because deposits are getting much harder to find, they're much smaller, they're much deeper, they're more refractory, it means you can't just have an increasing exploration trend to what you've had previously. You've got to do an awful lot more to keep up. Yep. So the fact it's ticked up a little in these last two years, it's all very well and good, but we're still so far behind the curve. So that gives me great concern. That at some point in the future, now whether it's within my working lifetime or later, I don't know, there will be a real crunch point where we're just going to really start to see some major deficiencies in certain commodities. Yeah. And uh, don't ask me what they are. Yeah, I mean, obviously in copper, uh, obviously with the, the battery metals coming into play, copper and electric cars, there seems to be uh, uh, electric cars need three or four times as much copper. Oh, but right. obviously copper's very undersupplied. And I did hear, uh, I did hear that 
a mine, a copper mine has to be built. The biggest copper mine has to be built every year from now up until God knows when. Um, and I know it takes seven to 30 years to actually develop a gold mine, uh, a copper mine. Well, so, that's statistic. I've heard that statistic. Is it right that, that you need to discover a Bingham Canyon every year? Yeah. Which is a huge, that's what I heard, huge yeah. project in the US. And uh, I mean, as a geologist, I've, and I've been to that project, it is absolutely enormous. And just conceivably thinking where, there's, where they're, they are going to come from around the world moving forward. I struggle. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I, we're really into the coppersphere. Ward holds an awful lot of copper projects, but most of them are grades way lower than things like Bingham Canyon. Their tonnage is way lower than Bingham Canyon. They're small. There may be a, a reasonably short payback period, which is great for investors. That's yeah. what they want. They want something they can put their money in, don't lose their shirt, get some payback and get out. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't help the global supply side of copper. So, I mean, that's just one example. But I think a lot of the major metals are suffering from a zinc. Another one is suffering from similar kind of uh, squeezes. And we're in a very interesting time now. I've never seen the whole battery metal scenario is something if you like, entirely new to me as a practicing geologist for 35 years. And I think this is going to really drive our metals economy for the for the coming years ahead, because everybody's now talking about it. And whether at the end of the day, the amounts of metals required are quite what people say. I mean, lithium is a great example of that. I mean, there's been huge hype over lithium. And uh, as, as readers probably know, lithium is not a particularly uncommon metal. Yeah. There's lots of it around. It's mainly to do with the technology and the, the costing the pricing of getting the lithium out of those various uh, deposits as soon as how should we say uh, technologies are developed to better extract these there is a strong argument that there'll be more than enough lithium to satisfy any battery metals need but some of the other metals the vanadiums the cobalts things like that graphite particularly yeah. most graphite comes from pretty small deposits around the world tends to be run on a cooperative basis or artisanal that's a big step from a couple of guys in a wheelbarrow to shit. We need, you know, we need a few thousand <laughs> yeah. tons of this material, yeah. a few million tons, and that's a big step change for companies. And a lot of these countries, such as your Madagascar's and places like that, they haven't got the track record of developing big graphite operations. They're small scale stuff, mm. and that's something again that, that the mining industry has got to deal with. And there's no magic wand here. You can't just say, "Oh yes, we'll have a big open pit out there," because the deposits just don't support that yet. Yeah. Fascinating times, absolutely yeah. fascinating. I think one other thing that I would add to that is also, I'm not sure that all of the exploration budget for the world goes into the right place. There are several countries around the world which are vastly unrepresented in terms of their proportion of the global exploration budget. Russia, I would say, is, is a case in point. You know, however much is spent in Russia, it's, it's not, you think it accounts for 17% of the world's surface area. The exploration budget should, that, that are being spent there should be significantly larger than they are at the moment, and it is just underexplored. And so, you know, that that is one potential solution to some of these problems. Is if if countries like that begin to see the opportunity, and then you know they realise that they can benefit from this exploration spend as well. It just needs a shift in policy at the top level to suddenly make it attractive to to explore in these places. Actually, I think they they would find that they would attract the budget if 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 the environment there was. Mm -hmm was attractive enough for the West, for the juniors to invest their money. You're quite right, Charlie. I spent a lot of time in Russia and out in the uh, in the stands. And, uh, you know, those countries, uh, they struggle to understand why they're not attracting the investment dollar from around the world um, because they have a fantastic metallogeny. They have huge potential for further discovery. And a lot of their exploration work, the majority of it was done back in the Soviet era throughout that whole region. And although that work was very, very thorough, it lacked obviously some of the modern techniques which are available today, which can actually you know, find some, some hidden deposits which previously would, would be unknown. 
And countries like Russia in particular, it is so vast. When you fly from Moscow across to Vladivostok, you're going hours and hours across nothing. But yeah. down there, there are some major deposits still to be discovered. But who's going to put that money in? You go to PDAC or into London and you go to any investment house here and you say, OK, guys, you've got 100 million of US dollar. Where are you going to spend it? I'll tell you now, places like Russia and the stands will be very low down on a risk on, mm. on a list. Yeah. And that's a huge shame because the potential there is huge. And actually, as a working environment, they're absolutely fine. But whether it's perception or real factors, there's a whole bunch of things why investors will not go there right now. Mm. And that needs to change because those countries themselves also need inward investment to help kickstart their own industries. So, you know, we could, that's a title yeah. for another podcast. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, has the battery metals bubble burst? I don't think it's burst. Um, you know, we don't really We're know down. where this where this bubble. Look, and if you if you look at headline prices, yeah, has the lithium price come off the top? Yes. Has the cobalt, cobalt price yeah. come Gone. off the top? Absolutely, it has. But you know, this is still almost such an unknown unknown. Uh, you know, if you if you look at uh, predictions for the world's electric vehicle fleet in in twenty twenty five, I mean, you look at the difference between the bottom of the range and the top of the range. It's absolutely huge. Mm. Uh, I mean, you know, it's 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 the difference between. 400,000 tonnes of nickel and about 2 million tonnes of nickel, to take just one example, you know, so it's the difference between 10% of the market and 50% of the market. Um, so, you know, uh, no, do, do I think it's burst? No, I don't think it's burst. With all markets, all of the time, you're going to see a degree of volatility in prices. When you've got a new technology like this, and, and the future rate of consumption is not, <laughs> indeed, so both the future rate of supply and demand are not known with a huge amount of certainty. There is always scope for a lot of volatility in prices. I think that's what we're seeing. Has it burst in the sense that, you know, you know, it's going to go to nothing? No, it definitely hasn't. You know, has it come off the top? Yeah, absolutely. Demonstrably has done. But, you know, we'll, we'll know. It's one of those things we'll know when, when in 10 years' time we look back, you know, whether... It, uh, you know whether it was it was just come where we'll know where it was going to, yeah. and therefore we'll be able to say what you know whether it's higher or lower than it is now. Um, it's very I, no, it's not burst because the, there's still those applications out there. The only thing that, that would make it properly burst, I think, in what I'd call a Briex way, would it would be if there was another technology to come along that would would supplant it. Yeah. Um, so last question: How do you see the exploration space developing over the next five or ten years? That's a tough question. Um, the majors, I think, are are doing their bit. Uh, Rio, I think, was announcing record exploration budgets for 2019-20, which is very encouraging. The problem is we're still in an investment scenario where the juniors are, are the bottom feeders. They're not getting funded. You just look at the numbers from last year. I think the ASX had a reasonable year, but you look at what's happened on, on AIM and the London markets in Toronto, it's a pretty bleak place at the mm. moment. And there are many companies going around who just haven't got the money to do that grassroots exploration. Uh, we've talked about this before, obviously, today. And, and it does worry me because historically, it was that junior sector that provided much of the exploration and the discoveries to allow the majors to come in and really take these projects on board. And right now, we're in a position where, if you like, the majors are looking after their main blocks of ground and their near mine site exploration. And still having some success but there isn't that junior level of, of exploration. Uh, it has to, it's, something's got to give. I, yeah. I, I don't know what the answer is, 
at some point, one would, I'm sure Charlie would agree, we, we all hope the markets will become more receptive to junior financing. Mm. But right now, we're still in very difficult times. Mm. And like you said, it's harder to find actually good projects at the moment. Exactly. So it's double whammy. Yeah. You know, it's tough to, tough to raise the money, but you've got to have a bloody good project yeah. to raise any money at the moment because the, the if you like, the, the tick list for what investors are wanting for their projects is pretty extreme. They want mm. something really watertight. And they don't. They're getting less and less, less and less common. I mean, I think that's absolutely right. I think what what Phil is alluding to is, you know, it's almost the bifurcation of the market. You know, it should be an integrated market, you know, between juniors, mid-tier miners, and, and the majors. And it really isn't. You've got the you've got the juniors, and then you've got the super majors, and you've got almost nothing between. And if anything does appear in between, then it is quite quickly snapped up. But you know, we've been waiting for this sort of wave of consolidation and mergers and acquisitions. But what everyone has in mind, and what would I think represent an efficient market would be if you saw the majors acquiring some of the juniors but you're not what you're seeing is majors acquiring majors mm. to make yeah. super majors and then the juniors are still being left to fend for themselves and yeah Phil is right something does have to give and, and you know the way markets work I'm sure it will give whether it's today this week this month this year or this decade I couldn't tell you but yeah. it, it, it will give it must give at some point yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so so concluding, um, Phil, I just wonder if you can tell us a little bit about Wardle Armstrong, obviously whilst the, I'm here in your offices, um, what sort of services you actually provide as a company um, and how you can help companies in the mining industry? Uh, yeah, Wardle Armstrong is a uh, UK partnership uh, established in 18, whatever it was, 39, I think, whatever it is, one of the oldest partnerships in the UK. Um, so our company is probably 75% UK focused and then I'm, <coughs> excuse me, I'm the MD of the Wardle Armstrong International, which is the international mining part of that. So this is this is really why we're here today to talk about that. Um, we historically have uh, provided a full range of services to the industry from your scoping studies through to your uh, definitive feasibility studies. And back in the days when people wanted to do IPOs, we did a lot of those as well, including Glencore was probably one of our biggest uh, IPOs. Um, sadly, those days are currently uh, uh, unavailable. I'm hoping it will come back at some point in time. Um, so that's been very much our bread and butter. But really, we're we're here to help clients, and whether that whatever stage of their project that be, from holding their hand through exploration management through troubleshooting their 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 projects. But I guess, our, and, and in that respect, we don't do anything different to our other peers, uh, other companies, SRKs, Golders, IMCs, etc. I guess our USP. We have a very large uh, mineral processing test work facility down in Cornwall at our laboratories there, and we take samples from all over the world and uh, do their metallurgical test work for them. And that now is unique in Europe, and uh, we find that's a very useful service for clients because, as everybody appreciates, uh, as deposits get tougher to find, they're often mineralogically more complex. And one of the key things you've got to decide at a very early stage of a project's life is can you actually get the metals out of the ore economically? And that's something we try and help our clients get to a, to get to that stage uh, as quickly as possible. Because obviously, it, it, yeah. once you start going down the track, you can spend an awful lot of money. So really, uh, we can help clients at all parts of the uh, curve, including all the environmental, social, and the and the later reclamation side. Yeah, and Charlie, can you tell us a little bit about uh, Edison Investment? Edison Investment Research is not quite as old as Wardle Armstrong. It was founded in 2003. It's a partnership as well. And um, it, it, it essentially it writes research, yeah. uh, exactly the sort of research you would have got from your stockbroker in the past um, on, on, well, a whole range of companies, in fact, all companies in the, in the UK market. I'm head of uh, mining research at Edison. And uh, so companies at various points, they need to interact with the, with the markets. 
Uh, they need to raise capital. They also need to um, keep their story in front of investors. Um, and, and we will help them do that. And uh, the idea is that you know, we will write research for both investors and for corporate clients as well. Uh, but for corporate clients in particular, they come to us and they say, look, please um, keep our story in front of investors. Quite often what you find with a with a traditional stockbroker in the post-MIFID 2 world, and I don't think this is the, the forum probably to talk about MIFID and MIFID 2 and, and what it means, uh, but it means that if a company is not of a certain size and it's not of a certain liquidity, it probably just doesn't get research written on. The brokers make their money essentially from primary listings. That's what, when a company first comes to the market and wants to raise money. But thereafter, the old-fashioned market place which used to work quite well, which is when I want to sell a thousand shares in Rio Tinto and Phil wants to buy and a stockbroker sits in the middle and takes commission. There is no money to be made out of that anymore. So once you're listed, once you're on the market, um, it's quite difficult to get a stockbroker interested in writing research on you. And what we say is, look, that's, that's where we come in. We will do that ongoing research in order to keep your story current with investors so they know where you are and your plans, what you're doing and, and what the investment opportunity is for them. Yeah. Well, thank you again, Phil and Charlie, for taking the time to discuss the, the report, um, which is a, was a good insight to analysing the global equity market's appetite for exploration uh, and pre-production for mining companies. Um, if our audience wants to obviously uh, contact either of you, maybe requesting a copy of the report um, or even using the services of Walter Armstrong, how can they uh, go about doing that? Uh, it's, it's on Edison's website, so you can okay. go to... Uh, uh, edisongroup.com or edisoninvestmentresearch.co.uk and you will you'll click through the links and you'll find it. Yeah. Free to wear. <laughs> and for Wardell Armstrong, again, uh, all the information is on the website, but I'm happy for people to uh, email me separately at pnewall at wardell-armstrong.com. Yeah. And are you on social media at all? I am on Facebook, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> the instagooglewebgrandbook.com. Not in the way I think you mean, but you can get me at mining at Edison. Group.com. Okay. Um, alternatively, you can contact myself um, if you want to ask uh, Phil or Charlie any questions. Um, you can contact me via email, which is rob at mining-international.org. Well, thank you for listening again. I hope you enjoyed these uh, podcasts. Really appreciate if you can give us some feedback around what you like about uh, these podcasts that I'm doing, um, what guests you may want to uh, want to appear on here, and more uh, any particular uh, topics of discussion. Um, you can post your reviews on any of the platforms that you listen to this podcast on, or you can email me directly. So, ha- um, so until next time, happy mining. Thanks for listening to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. If there are any topics you want discussed or questions you want to ask any guests, then you can email us at rob at mining-international.org. Or you can follow Rob and Mining International on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter and YouTube for more content and to have your questions answered. Until next time, happy mining.